um, the Bible reading comes from, from Luke uh, 15, uh, verses 11 to 24. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Thank you, Kat, for reading. Um, can I add my welcome to Claire's if you've joined us since beginning to unforeseen at this lunchtime service. Now, back in September, if you can remember back that far, after 12 long years away, Cristiano Ronaldo, arguably the greatest footballer of all time, returned to play his first game back at Manchester United, his old club. And the euphoria from the Manchester United uh, fans and the UK sporting media at the time was off the scale. The Sunday Times headline read like this, Cristiano Ronaldo, biblical excitement for the return of Old, Trafford, Old Trafford's prodigal son. And this is how the article went on to describe this great homecoming. This is David Walsh writing. I don't know if you, uh, any of you read David Walsh. He's absolutely brilliant. Anyway, this is what he wrote. It had begun long before the game. Walking towards the stadium, Manchester United's fans, many clad in their number seven replica shirts, chanted relentlessly, Viva Ronaldo! Not since that poor fatted calf was killed to celebrate the biblical return of the prodigal son had there been a homecoming like this. The role of the fatted calf in this two-act drama was set aside for Newcastle United. And so the article went on in these terms. And we come here this week to what is probably Jesus' best known parable, the parable, the so-called parable of the prodigal son. And it's so well known that it's even used as a metaphor to describe the return of great footballers to their former clubs. However, it turns out though that even though this is the best 
known of Jesus' parables, it's possibly also the least well understood. So just for a few moments this afternoon, can I invite you and encourage you to set aside what you think you know about this parable and listen to it as if you're hearing it again for the first time. Because in the common understanding of this parable in our culture, it's all about the prodigal son who goes off and spends recklessly all that he has in wild living and then returns home to much rejoicing. However, I'd like us to see this afternoon that the focus of the parable is actually on the prodigal father. The prodigal father who has not one, but two lost sons and who welcomes both of them home with recklessly generous, extravagant, prodigal grace. The father in the parable represents God and the two sons represent two different ways of being lost from God. And we're going to focus on the younger son this week and the older son next week. And we're just going to think about the younger son under two headings, lost and found. It's the very heart of the, the Christian message. What does it mean to be lost from God and how can we all be found by God? So first, lost. If you were to uh, ask people today, what does it mean to be lost from God? I think the vast majority of people would say an, an answer in terms of moral behaviour in some way, or the Ten Commandments. It means doing things that God commands us not to do. Lying, jealousy, adultery, theft, murder, etc. And certainly Jesus does refer to the younger son going off and spending his money in wild living. However, the, the more I've reflected on this parable, the more it struck me that Jesus doesn't focus on, on whatever this behaviour is that the younger son has got up to in a distant country. It just gets a passing reference. Instead, Jesus directs our attention on the relationship between the younger son and his father. So in verse 12, you'll see, he says to his father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now we need to appreciate just what a shocking thing this is to say from the son to the father in the culture of that time. Sons inherited property from their father when they died. It was unheard of for assets to be handed over within the lifetime of the, of the father. So what the younger son is effectively saying here to his father is, I wish you were dead. When you die, I will inherit a proportion of your property. So let's just be practical about this. If you give me my share now, then I can get on with my life without having to wait for you to die. So he, wa he wants the father's things, but he doesn't want the father himself. He wants to be free of his father to do his own thing. It's such a shockingly personal re rejection when you realise this. I mean, just imagine, you know, if you're a parent, just imagine how devastating this would be to have one of your children saying this to you. But isn't, isn't this how all of us treat God in different ways? We're happy to enjoy the good things that God has given us in this life, but we don't actually want God himself. And we could do that in a very conscious way, um, such as that atheist bus campaign you may remember from about 10 years ago, um, with the message that read, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. 
Or we can do it in a more unconscious way, where if pressed for a direct answer, we would say, yes, I, I do think there must be a God who has created this extraordinary universe and world. But in practice, we're atheists because we, we still immerse ourselves in enjoying the good things of life without paying God any attention to the person who's given them to us. And freedom to do what I want is, is probably the fundamental value, the base value of our culture now. And, and we, we breathe its air to a greater or lesser extent. And I just think, I think it's really interesting that when Jesus has an opportunity to, to define what does it mean to be lost from God, he doesn't use a behavioural example of a, of a murderer or a rapist or someone that we might imaginally, automatically think of. But actually he uses a relational example of a normal person like us lot here in chapel this afternoon, saying to their father, just give me your things, but please leave me alone. And it seems that by verse 18, the younger son has, has learned that lesson. Because when he comes to his senses and he decides to return to his father, he doesn't rehearse a speech where he lists a series of things that he's done wrong. He actually focuses on the, his relationship with his father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So the uncomfortable challenge of the first, the first lost son is, is that all of us are more lost from God than we ever imagined. We may have gone a long way into a distant country and done things that we know are wrong, but our lostness doesn't amount to certain wrong behaviours. They're, they're symptoms, if you like, of a deeper problem that we all have, our rejection of God, so that we're free to be mini-gods ourselves, in charge of our own lives, free to do what we want. So whether we're new to the Christian faith this afternoon or, or we've been involved in church all our lives, are we ready to admit this about ourselves? Because it's only when we appreciate the, the depths of our lostness from God that we can truly see the wonder of what it means to be found by God. Which brings us to the second point of um, first lost son, how to be found by God. And the first indication of what it means to be found by God actually comes at the very beginning of the story, in verse 12. Do have a look back. It's how the, the father responds to the younger son's request to divide the property. We've already seen that the request itself is shocking, but to the original hearers of the parable, the father's response to the request would have been even more shocking. Because again, in that culture, the expected response to such a disrespectful and unloving demand from the son would have been for the father to instantly disinherit his son, send him away in disgrace permanently from the family home. But instead, incredibly, the father agrees to the son's brazen request. And this would have been seen as deeply weak and shaming for him and for, for the whole family, leaving a scar on their reputation in the community. And it also would have been economically damaging. The inheritance rules in Israel at the time were that the eldest son received twice the amount of the remaining sons. So in this case, this would have meant the younger son receiving a full one-third of the entire estate, the entire wealth of the family. 
And that's, it's accentuated in, in verse 12 by the, that word that translates property. In Greek, it's, it's bios. It literally means, it means life, livelihood. So it, it emphasizes the fact for the, for the son to be given the inheritance now, the father is literally dividing up the whole family livelihood, the family life. He literally tears his life apart to give the younger son what he wants. So even at this stage of, of the story, the indications are that he hasn't actually given up on this younger son. He dares to believe that one day he might welcome him back. Because have you wondered, have you ever wondered when you've read this parable, after all he's done, what, why in verse 18 does the younger son even contemplate going going home to his father and appealing to his mercy. I think it's because he's already experienced an extraordinary mercy and love from his father at the beginning of the story. And it's not the younger son who actually makes the first move in in that case to, to come home. His father's already made the first move back in verse 12 when he treats him with such outrageous mercy in the beginning. So that's a, that's a key thing for us to understand about what it means to be found by God is to realise that it is God who makes the first move to love us and forgive us. And I can't imagine a more powerful illustration of that than what we get in verse 20. This wonderful picture of the father welcoming the son home. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Let's just take, just notice those details one by one in that verse. While he was still a long way off, it tells you that the father was scanning the horizon ever since the son left, ready to welcome him home. He felt compassion for him. The Greek word for compassion is literally gut-wrenching love. Gut-wrenching love. His heart goes out to him. Instead of standing on his his porch, sort of drumming, angrily drumming his fingers, waiting for the son to come back and give him a good apology. He's there full of gut-wrenching compassion, waiting, waiting for the son to come. He ran. Now, it's very easy to, to, to miss this, but the fact is, Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. It was undignified and culturally totally unacceptable thing to do. To run to his son means the father would have had to basically hitch up his robes and run in this incredibly undignified manner across, across the front field, or however far he had to get. Imagine for a moment that the queen invited you round for dinner at Buckingham Palace, and your taxi pulls up outside the gates at the front. And then to your horror and embarrassment, you see the queen coming across the gravel, hitching up her robes, coming out to, to, to meet you. I mean, it would just be, it'd be so embarrassing, wouldn't it? It's unthinkable. But the father gives not a second thought to his dignity. All he cares about is welcoming the son home. And finally, he kissed him. Now again, the Greek word here is really powerful. It's literally fell upon his neck kissing him and embracing him. And all this has happened even before the younger son has been able to get a a single word out of his well-rehearsed repentance speech. 
The father doesn't even wait to hear what the son's going to say. He doesn't even actually know that he's repentant, if you think about it. On, on basis of the, the son's track record, the son could very easily be coming back home and asking for more money. Do you see that the kiss comes before the repentance speech? And even when the son does start managing to blurt out his speech, he gets quickly cut off by the father. He doesn't, get, he doesn't even get a chance to float his idea of working his way back as a hired servant. The father puts a ring on his finger, the best robe in the house to cover his rags, the symbols of being a full member of the family again. And finally, the fatted calf is killed. It was a, a rare privilege in those times to eat meat on that scale. So the whole community would have been invited. It would have been a huge party, very public, great and generous rejoicing. So you see, in the figure of the father, we have this recklessly ex- extravagant, prodigal God, prodigal in his love for us, despite the fact that we don't deserve it. And I wonder what your reaction is this afternoon to that kind of description of God. I I can imagine two potential reactions. If you know that you've run far away from God, do you think that you need to earn your way back into his good books, like, like the younger son is thinking? He thinks he's going to pay off his debts like a hired servant. And let's face it, it's the way that so much of life works for us. We work hard to get rewards. But the prodigal God of Christianity is not like this. He welcomes us back, even though we don't deserve it. And how wonderful that he does. Because if we stop and think about it, we know that we could never earn God's forgiveness in that way. If we've been created by God, it stands to reason that we owe him everything. We don't just owe him one-third of the estate. We, we owe him all of our life. And the wonderful message of this parable is that we don't have to pay our debt back to God. Because in Jesus Christ, we have a God who didn't just, didn't just run from his porch across the fields. He ran all the way from heaven to us. He didn't just bare his legs and lose his dignity for us. He was stripped and naked on a cross for us. He didn't just open his arms to us. He opened his arms wide upon a cross for us. He did all that to pay back a debt that we could never pay back to God. So that one day, this God could welcome us home, throw his arms around us and say to us, Welcome home. But perhaps there are other of us here who perhaps we're still effectively stuck in that distant country. We've sought freedom from God to live our life our own way, the way we want it. But, but, but no experience that we've had in that distant country has, has ever fulfilled us. It's never been the home that we were looking for. And perhaps we want to come home to God, but we, we know that we can't earn our way back. And also we think that God won't forgive us and welcome us back. Well, if that's you this afternoon, please can I direct your attention again to God as that father who's waiting on the porch for you, scanning the horizon for you, hitching up his robe to run out and meet you, falling upon your neck and kissing you, and bringing you home to celebrate with you.
I wonder if you know Francis Thompson's poem, The Hand of Heaven. It, it describes a whole life lived running away from God, and yet all the time God's still pursuing this person in love. And the poem opens with these lines. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the mist of tears I hid from him. And under running laughter, up-vistered hopes I sped, and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. And in the last verse of this poem, the person finally stops running from God and realises, finally, that the freedom, this home of freedom that they've been looking for, is actually in the arms of God himself. And the poem finishes, All which thy child's mistake fancies has lost, I have stored for thee at home. This is God speaking. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. And in the same way in this parable, the God whom Jesus describes is a father who, who loves you with a prodigal love more recklessly extravagant than you ever believed or imagined. A God who calls you home with those words, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, come home. Well, let's, let's pray together now for God's help that we might do that. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, please forgive us for enjoying the good things of life but ignoring you, the giver. And we thank you that wherever we wander far from home and far from you, you welcome us back with open arms of love because Jesus Christ opened his arms of love for us on the cross. In your mercy, please help us to come home for the first time or remind us that we also remain at home with you through your never-ending love for us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.